0: Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. Okay, I've been talking to, making friends on Bumble. You know someone was like, "Yeah, I just got broken up because they didn't realize I I was serious about not wanting kids." And I'm like, "Girl, I'm sorry." <laughs> You're not alone in that house, oh my gosh. <sighs> why don't yeah. people take people seriously? Is just such like a standard expectation in society that, of course, you're going to want to have kids. And of course, you're going to change your mind. No. I was literally no. thinking about this
1: before recording today. I wasn't thinking about someone not wanting kids, but I was thinking about how growing up, my family never took me seriously because I was the baby, even though, Every time I told them something, I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. It related to very specific things in my wheelhouse and knowledge that like, yeah, send, but they didn't want to because I was the youngest. And Aww. now I'm like, now I'm facing that as an adult too, where it's like, I know what I'm talking about. Why are you not taking me seriously? Yeah. And then it just kind of expands to everybody else. Why are we not taking people's words Seriously, like when they're making very clear, definitive statements about
0: themselves, why are we not taking that seriously? People don't want to actually believe because there's the ever living idea that people can change. People will change. People do change. And so they think that's enough to not listen to anyone, which is terrible because we're also it also means that we're not listening to the people who are like, yeah, I love my kids, but I wish I hadn't had them because you can't say that and be accepted in society
1: mm-hmm.
0: people regret like getting married they regret having all sorts of relationships and that's okay but it's also not allowed and that's why we're not taken seriously and I mean with my family like I I've clearly changed in the last like 10 years and they don't realize it as much but not just because like I do say it sometimes but other times I'm just like yeah whatever Because it's easier just to like shrug things off than like get into it because I know they're not going to believe me or they're going to argue back the whole time. Because last time I was like, I don't think I'm gonna get married. And they're like, Oh, no, you'll find someone you'll find someone you just you just need to wait for the right person or you need to lower your standards. You'll you'll find someone I'm like, that's not what this is. But okay, whatever. I don't I don't want to do this with you. Do you you think it's possible
1: that people don't take what other people say seriously because it doesn't
0: conform with whatever their worldview is. Yes. I would agree with that. Yeah, because they think if I got married and I can convince myself it's the best thing in the world, then clearly that's gonna happen to everyone else too.
1: Yeah. Because like with the example of your family, you have changed over the last 10 years. I mean I've only known you for like five of them, but like you've changed in those five years. Yes. Like (laughs) You have changed, but not in the way that your family thinks that you should have changed, and they think I can change back. Yeah, they think you should have changed to married with like five kids. That should have been your change. That is what they want from me. But your change is being like, nah, I'm good. I could be, single. yeah. It's
0: like, can Doubling I just do this? this? Can I yeah. just be the traveling aunt? Like, I'm okay with that brand in my family. I'm the the crazy aunt who. Spoils her nibblings. I am more than happy for that for the rest of my life, kind of thing. Especially if I become the crazy rich and who spoils her nib- nibblings and Abby's. Heck um, yes, that's, that is my goal, and that is something I'm very like ready and eager to do. But when it comes to like the idea of even just getting married or even just being in a relationship, I just like start cringing at the idea. Like <laughs> I like uh Richard and Anna came over we watched Heather's on Tuesday and like he make a, he makes you know he makes jokes and everything and he, like, he's like yeah and he like would like make like flirtatious remarks about like actors and things like that in relationships and I'm like huh yeah and then I'm like why would anyone want that why would anyone want that I don't like that that's so stupid I hate it um and like just like all those like side things inside my head which I'm not gonna like say to anyone because it's like yeah Richard you should have that yeah we can laugh about that but I'm like inwardly I'm like I don't want any of that I don't want someone I don't need things like that. And that's okay. But also it's not considered acceptable. So yeah, like I have nothing against anyone. If they want to be in relationships, if they want to have kids, if they don't want kids, that's, that's allowed. That's allowed. 2023. We need to take
1: people's words seriously when they are saying things about themselves that they want for themselves. Yes. Listen to them and accept it even if it
0: conflicts with your world view. Yes, please. We are thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network.
1: For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought,
0: arts, and culture. You can support our podcast and others in the network by subscribing at dialogjournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. You can learn more at dialoguejournal.com. So check it out.
1: So let's get into corrections corner for the day. Are we keeping all that we just talked about? Okay, (laughs) I might cut some things out, but yeah, let's Uh -uh. keep it. I think it's important. Uh, It's important conversations (laughs) that people need to hear before we end our podcast.
0: Yes, (laughs) yes, I think that's (laughs) very strong. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so we don't have anything for our corrections corner. Um, At least no one has come Mm -hmm. out yelling at us. No, I haven't heard anything. That's good so yeah um cool okay then we've got our introduction cheers um we're doing uh this is our third book club episode and our last book club episode you know
1: I think I think considering the fact that we decided to do a book club this year for the whole season and we stuck with it for the whole season Uh I feel like we deserve like our own little round of applause and like cheer if I could ins- if I I'm going to find like air horns and just go <laughs> right here like if I can overlay it <laughs> perfect I'm going to do that
0: <laughs> I like it. that let's see that Also, yeah, we did pretty good. Like we got the three episodes. We're doing the three episodes that we wanted to do for our book club. Um, There is a thing that we had also like discuss other books that we wanted to discuss in the future and explore them, which, you know, now won't be happening, Um, but that's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that we won't be reading them on our own in the future. Um, Because for those who still don't know, um, there is a lot of fantastic LDS literature out there. We've got poetry, we've got fiction, we've got history, and we've got more. Like it's just a little tricky to know where to find it sometimes because it's not always at Deseret or at Seagull Books. Um, So we invite you to check out more LDS organizations and connections to discover what else there is because there there is a lot. If you dive into Dialogue hello, um, or the Exponent 2 magazine, those are two really good starting off points for you um, to just start seeing who's writing, who's doing what, what's going on. Um, because then you'll go off on those veins with like the archive again. And like in all these other directions with all these great voices. And I promise you guys won't be disappointed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But first you do have to stay here and join us for the last. <laughs> you we're holding episodes. you hostage. <laughs> so <laughs> You sign up for this. You clicked play. You're here. We're here. So let's yes. do this. So
1: this week, our, actually this book club, this quarter's book club book of choice wow that was really hard to get through i don't know what happened to me you did it i think i just had a stroke honestly i don't know my gosh okay so this month's book is kingdom of nauvoo the rise and fall of a religious empire on the american frontier i don't know why i held this up it's only you and me in the zoom
0: (laughs) i mean i really appreciate that i can do that too we can just oh look both we both have books (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> can, you, can you tell this week has been too much for my brain to handle because it's melting yes.
0: as I'm as we're speaking. We didn't even have our usual like hour conversation before pushing record, no. and I could tell no. we like, don't
1: have time to. Because like, I'm running
0: to my second job as soon as we stop recording today. So
1: I did this to myself. Okay, so the book <sighs> is by. Dr. Benjamin E. Park, he is the Assistant Professor of History at Sam Houston State University. He is also the author of American Nationalisms. He has written for the Washington Post, Newsweek, and the Houston Chronicle. He lives in Conroe, Texas, and he is also the co-editor for the Mormon Studies Review. We both follow him on Twitter, he has some incredible historic hot takes about Mormonism and everything right. under the sun. And we just <laughs> love following him on Twitter. So if you get a chance, take a look at him. We wanted to read a preface of the book where
0: you can buy it on Norton.com. Is that what it is? It is W. Oh, okay. It's not W. 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 It's. Okay, so W.W. W. Norton like slash, or like, and company, and it's like, like I'm going to totally butcher this. I just don't understand the whole thing. It's because published by Liveright, but it's like by W.W. W. Norton. I don't know. Benjamin, uh, Dr. Park, if you listen to this episode, you're going to have to explain everything. <laughs> um, we don't know what it is. <laughs> We're right. uncultured swine at this point. <laughs> we... <laughs> We are a chaotic mess but we're gonna do our best but you will want to go to www.norton.com um that's one of the best places you can make your purchase um but i mean buy it wherever you can kind of thing maybe not amazon yeah
1: yeah probably not okay so the preface says quote (laughs) in kingdom of nauvoo benjamin e park draws on newly available sources to recreate the founding and destruction of the mormon city of nauvoo on the banks of the mississippi in illinois the early Mormons built a religious utopia, establishing their own army and writing their own constitution. For those offenses and others, including the introduction of polygamy, which was bitterly opposed by Emma Smith, the iron-willed first wife of Joseph Smith, the surrounding population violently ejected the Mormons, sending them on their flight to Utah. Throughout his Absorbing Chronicle, Park shows how the Mormons of Nauvoo were representative of their era, and in doing so, elevates Mormon history into the American mainstream. So just like this preface says, this book dives into the history of Nauvoo in America, and it tells a lot of things about Mormon history that the church does not really put a spotlight on. And something that I found interesting throughout this book is that Dr. Park does shine a light on those moments. It's always said in history, there's always three sides to a story. There's one person's point of view, another person's point of view, and then the truth. And it's the same with like conversations or like he said, she said interactions. There's always three sides to every story. The church will publish one side and hide certain things. Another historian will publish other things and hide certain things that the Mormons liked to highlight. And then a third party will reveal the whole truth eventually. And I feel like Dr. Park does a really good job of combining all three views in his book and in his narrative. So I think
0: you're in for a treat when you read this. It is. It is. It's, it, it was very difficult to read because it is nonfiction and that's not my forte. Um, but he is a compelling writer because he does pull from quite a few very specific resources, some that have only come out within the last five or so years, which is why, like, this is how we get a lot of um, information out that hasn't been super public um, until now. Um, so... I mean, when I was exploring this book and reading up reviews on this, it was very interesting to see how everyone um, absorbed his writings. Because a lot of people were like, "Oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever! Like, this is amazing. I get it now. This makes so much sense." He's such a good writer. And others are like, "Yeah, he's totally a good writer," but I also don't totally agree with the, his take on this. And they'd get like give like very reasonable explanations, and they're like, "Okay, it's a little bit nuanced," or "He could have explained it this way," or "I don't totally like he kind of missed a point here," kind of thing. I don't. I can't get into the specifics, but it was it was very high uh enlightening to to read um, all that was going on in those conversations. Yeah. But yeah. So the main thing we want to get across as we dive into this is that we all when you read church literature, it's it's just so very like church centric. It's very. Mormons are right Mormons are the victims kind of set up yeah whereas what uh Dr. Park is doing is saying like here's what was going on in America at the moment here's where Abraham Lincoln was at this moment um and then here's what was going on and here are the polit- political movements that were going on at the time um and so here's how the Mormons kind of played into here and here's how this um because and you can see from Dr. Park's Experience like from the stuff that he's written before, the stuff that he's doing now, he's very much a He is he is a historian. He knows what he's doing. He understands the nuances of early America, where a lot of people don't, including I'm going to say some Mormon writers who have written things in the past and are telling a version of the story without understanding the intricacies of political movements that were going on at that time because they weren't historians themselves. I think piggybacking off of that
1: comment, the great example that we have, we already talked about in our Under the Banner of Heaven episode of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, how like the general authority from the episode in that show, the general authority was saying how like oh, the Mormons and the Native Americans worked so closely together. They had such a good relationship, blah, 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 like really painted that whole situation in such a beautiful, like Mormon affirming light. When in reality, there was nothing wrong with the people that were passing through the Utah territory to get to California. They weren't trying to hurt anyone or steal anyone's resources. And they were literally murdered in cold blood. And that's the historic truth. If you look at strictly church history, you're only going to see the things that favor the church, which is understandable because church historians are employed by the church and they want to make sure that everything looks as good and shiny and wonderful as humanly possible. We can't really fault them for that because they're doing what they're asked to be done. That grammar was bad, but the
0: sentiment remains. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, you have a very valid point because if anything comes out of the church, it has to go through a lot of reviews by certain figures in church leadership to have it approved to be mm-hmm. shared. So it's, it's going to have to put the church in a very specific light in order to get passed through, which is why you're going to miss out on some really good stuff. Um, that might not be put in Deseret or a single book, because I don't know if, Kingdom of Nabu is actually put in all those places. That's where I bought mine, but I've heard comments before where like some people couldn't find it in their bookstore and like there are limits on like where it might get sold because it wasn't published by the church. Anyways. Yeah. So we, so with all this, we kind of want to take a stab at exploring more about the restoration and about American history while we skim over the highlights and church lessons throughout the year um, within, you know, our church classes, it's important to note that there really are a ton of records that can teach us so much more than our typical manuals. Um, Like those are just the bare bones of like what we actually have to access things like, Um, Dr. Park pulled from a lot of older materials that I'll be, that we'll be referencing throughout this episode that we can access. We're just not really doing that because sometimes maybe we're too busy. Maybe we don't know what they are. Maybe we don't know how to access them and so on. Um, for example, you can take the Joseph Smith journals. Um, those have been made public within the last 10 years or so. And they're really great to learn from. Like Those are records from Joseph Smith's time with everything that was actually going on. Um, they are public now. We've pulled material from those in the past. And there's even like a, an annual conference for them. And like, which I'm pretty sure has been free for like the last couple of years, at least during the pandemic. I don't know if it usually is. Um, but there's just like so many sources for us to like still learn from. You don't need to just be waiting around for someone to share that in Sunday school. There are other ways of learning things. And so because of all the documentation and the journals that continue to be discovered, reviewed, and publicly shared by the church, which, you know, can take some time, um, Dr. Park was able to put together so much of this book. Um, So there's just a lot of history for us to be able to learn about. And this book does a really good job of diving into it headfirst and explaining everything. So as we go through our episode, we invite you to study the past and learn from the mistakes, the miracles, and the mess. Yeah. Because it's messy too. Like very messy. <laughs> it is. It is. Yes.
1: Um, there was a lot to learn about it, yes. this flick. And we're only going to be covering like the tip of the iceberg, truly. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. No, I wrote out like half my notes and then I realized this was basically all that was just in the prologue. Yes. Like, that was like, <laughs> I, re- I just rewrote the prologue <laughs> in a very basic manner because <laughs> it was so fascinating. Yeah. So
1: let's, let's jump into this. We may be sporadic and jumping around throughout the entire episode talking about what held our attention the most um like Kaylee said this book was challenging for us to get through I also struggle with nonfiction personally that is my cross to bear in this life <laughs> but we do have a few highlights that we wanted to share with you all
0: today Exactly. The first of them was Joseph Smith's desire to rework America, basically. I put it down as overthrow the American government. Kind of what because it is. That's not wrong. That's kind of what it was. Yeah. <laughs> it's not wrong. Um, I think we've noted this in one or two episodes in the past, but we haven't like really gotten into detail about it. Um, but Dr. Park did, um, which is very helpful because I'd been having a hard time earlier and better under and like needing to better understand what Joseph Smith was really wanting to do, why he was wanting to do it, what was going on, um, and so on. Like we talk so little about Joseph Smith's campaign for presidency. We don't really understand anything, at least in my perspective. Um, so diving into this book head first was just like an excellent way to start Seeing some of the history of what was going on during the time and what he was doing. And especially for me, it was very interesting because I grew up homeschooled for um, a certain frame of time. And my studies are very focused um, on an LDS centric angle of like America. Like it was American based, it was LDS based. It was America the Great. Let's learn from the perfect people who started this perfect country and learn how to be perfect like them. That was kind of the mentality that was going on. And to now read this book where it's like, no, Joseph Smith didn't like what America was doing. They are basically against American democracy. They wanted to redo everything. It's the funniest thing. I, I, I'm still just like, how, how did nobody get this? And it's so funny too, because
1: like every like super Republican member of the church forgets this. Oh yeah. When they're all like, well, we need to defend the Constitution. And we're all like, okay, which one do you mean? Yeah. Because
0: it's hanging by a thread.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because someone that you venerate Good. higher than everybody else wanted to change it completely. And mm-hmm. did, in fact, write
0: his own version of it. So you, we need you to be more specific here. Yeah, so it's very fascinating to read how Park discussed how like Joseph Smith like was putting together his plan, um, how he wanted to rewrite the constitution. So, because I mean it, it goes into so much, but like there was a lot going on in politics. It wasn't just a Republican versus Democrat, like Democrats at the time. The Democratic Party was only like 10 years old at the time. Um, and the Whigs were like very much in power. Um, Joseph Smith and the rest of the Mormons kept like trying to like get more support because they knew um some things that they were doing was done to uh, like getting around considered kind of crazy so they wanted support they wanted protection and then the pol- politicians wanted their votes um but like weren't like really willing to like follow through with what they were saying so as the saints began to realize they might not be protected enough Joseph Smith wanted to do something about this um he like that's one of the reasons he was running for president i mean even back then the Mormons were super organized like Park talked about how they were sending people out to each state. Um, it wasn't just like a haphazard affair; it was a systemic, systematic pr- process they worked through. Um, like even then, like they they knew what they were doing, basically. And so, during Justice's run for president, he worked on the Council of the Fifty to so that they could prepare for a theocratic kingdom, which is insane. I think that's crazy. It is. Had you heard of the Council of the 50 before no, this? No. No. Yeah. Okay. I I knew in
1: like whispers, like hushed tones throughout <laughs> like gospel doctrine years past that like he had run for president. Like it had been mentioned yeah. in like a passing comment at some point in my time growing up. But I never knew that he got a group of 50 people together who worked with him on rewriting the constitution and then were ready to petition the government with this rewrite. But also, okay, I know we talked about this before, how like the constitution was originally written to be like constantly updated and like modified. So technically he was doing what the founding fathers wanted. However, he did it in a shady way that is not oh, no. what you're supposed to be doing. Like this is definitely like like what the January 6th people would have done, kind of oh, overthrowing
0: gosh. the constitution. Well, there, there there's several uh Republican-based or conservative-based um groups kind of head in right now, like from my understanding, is that like they're trying to like get enough support to like rewrite the constitution as it is, which like technically yeah, but I don't know. Let's not get into that too much.
1: Just to like quote it's, Book of Mormon type of things, secret combinations are not good. Like we no. don't need secret combinations.
0: No, which is Prophet Joseph Smith <laughs> because we preach so much against it. And as you're gonna, as we're gonna go through these notes, um, they were ver- they were very secretive about these. Like it was all men, of course. So the men weren't allowed to tell their wives anything. And a lot of this stuff has only come out within like less than 10 years and shared publicly outside of the church. This is one of
1: those moments where you're like, men have zero rational thinking skills, but they have all of the audacity. Yes. all of it. Oh my gosh. Yes,
0: exactly. Anyways, that's not the point of this episode to bash (laughs) on men. We're coming back to the book. (laughs)
1: All right. Yes.
0: Back to the notes. Um, OK, so the second half of the second paragraph in the prologue um, reads about how several church members men obviously spent weeks drafting together their own constitution. Park mentioned the first line. We, the people of the kingdom of God, is how it began. Clearly, borrowing from another well-known constitution. and <coughs> <coughs> <coughs>
1: The regular asked- preamble. But anyways.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In case you guys didn't know. It's OK. It's fine. Then Park adds, what followed was a paradoxical mix of traditional Republican language and revolutionary theocratic ideas. It was time the document announced for the kingdom of God to replace the governments of men. The men were at the cusp of a new form of divine governance. Which is funny because like the constitution itself is also like. Super contra It's it's super contradicting. Like these are men writing things, of course, like nothing's going to totally make sense. And it's going to remain a mess for hundreds of years. That's where we're at. Um, Yeah, so this is the Council of 50. When they started meeting together, Joseph Smith was appointed prophet, priest and king at the morning meeting on April 11th. Um, so Parker re- writes that that afternoon he delivered a discourse more traditionally Republican in nature and centered on religious liberty. His new council would rule the world under the auspices of God's free but Smith insisted that they should always include non-Mormons within their ranks as the kingdom was separate from the church. Smith even initiated three non-Mormons into the council. He declared his intent to allow any citizen to think and worship as they please, as long as they worked within the boundaries of divine law. That citizenship in the kingdom required allegiance to Smith's prophethood did not seem to throw off that balance, at least in his view. To him, it was the only way to preserve order and reserve that the and reserve the religious liberties to the saints that he felt they had been deprived of. Smith became so animated during his discourse that he swung around a 24 inch ruler and broke it in two. In response, Brigham Young said, as a rule is broken in the hands of our chairman, so might every tyrannical government be broken before us. The world was theirs for the taking. I That's hate from- <laughs> Brigham Young. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That <laughs> Finish <stupid>. that. <laughs> um, oh, I was going to reference. It's on page 204 um, in the book. Okay, fun fact. If it makes you feel any better, is that like I was reading it later in the book, um, I don't know if you remember this point, but so apparently, so Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy on his own in secret, with like basically no one really knowing about it for like you know a couple of years, and then he started telling like his core of the twelve kind of yeah. stuff. Um, and then Brigham Young put out his first polygamy like offer thing, and he got rejected. That's what the Yeah, uh,
1: I mean understandable yes. i'm sure some woman was like i do not want to be saddled to that type of crazy <laughs> with no. red hair hey like
0: <laughs> he makes redheads look bad i'm sorry he does, he does a mess. um i would like to think that we have since we sort of our name but honestly we just don't have that solid of a reputation through like any time frame so oh gosh
1: Oh my oh, gosh, okay. I just
0: think that that whole... The whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing is crazy. Such dog words. They <laughs> swore him in as prophet, priest, and king of the world. Totally normal. Just like a you know Tuesday morning.
1: <laughs> Maybe this is just me yes. theorizing and questioning things now, but like, your intention is to run for president of the United States of America. Are you then going to declare yourself publicly as president that you are now prophet priest and king of the entire world and just
0: hope that all of the other countries are like yeah okay sounds about right i'm trying to think about how the world would have reacted at that time they would have been like america okay they're crazy and then i don't feel like we'd have that reputation for like power as much but they'd just be like yeah whatever do your thing you guys are like a budding country you're your own crap I feel
1: like, one, it would have taken an absurd amount of time for every other country to get that information because, you know, 1800s. But then on top of that, once they get the information, I feel like just looking at, like, England, first of all, the United Kingdom would probably laugh. Like, we would hear the laughter in America because of how loud their laughter was. They would be like, you're kidding, right? Like, we just got a divorce, like, what? 50 years ago and you're already playing this game trying to do what we do, conquer the world and rule everything. In
0: that situation, England would be like, nah, that's not happening. And they just like come and start the war all over again. (laughs) This doesn't meet the terms of our divorce agreement. (laughs) Uh, Well, who was in power then? By that point, was it Victoria? I don't know. Let me look it up. I, I think it was. Um, or like right before, like her her uncle, before he abdicated or died. I don't remember which one he did. I think he abdicated. He didn't have kids. Or he died. Dang it. William the yeah, was the king
1: until 1837. Okay. What about the 40s? Early 40s. 38 until 1901 was Queen Victoria. Okay.
0: So yeah, it would have yeah. been Victoria. Yeah. Young queen. I feel like she could have gone for it you be like let's take it, let's take that land back. Let's I don't I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um the new Mormon Empire clearly, as we know, did not happen in the way that Joseph Smith and the Council of the 50 um hoped that it would. Thank goodness. Um <clears throat> that'd really weird. Um yeah. okay, so I do want to add a note um from a review. Uh, by Katie Ludlow-Ridge shared in the Exponent Two magazine, um, back in August of last year, twenty twenty one. She uh, so she did a review of this book and men- and like shared some thoughts and insights and her. Um, Opinions. And she mentioned that the council was to write a new constitution to replace the United States Constitution and provide a forum for God's voice to rule. Significantly, after Joseph had organized the Relief Society in 1842 and incorporated women into the Quorum of the Anointed in 1843, thereby expanding women's roles and formal leadership in the city and ecclesiastical structure of the church, the Council of 50 was all male and members were instructed to keep their activities secret from even their wives. So now I have, you know, back up to what I was saying earlier, um, as well as like as I mentioned that there are a lot of women who had, a, who were capable of doing a lot, um, were in roles of leadership and duty and responsibility. Like the, the, the original race society that was set up before it was disbanded is basically what the welfare system um, set up and the church, like that's what it was originally. Um, you know, so like men said like, here, well, you can do this. Under our rule, oh, you did a really good job. we'll just take it for ourselves in that kind of situation um, and give you guys something basic later um, so it's just really interesting to consider all the things that were getting set up at that time, everything that the church was doing it was like very industrious when you think about it. were they right in everything they were doing? no, but they were industrious they were determined to do things and to keep growing so then um, it there is more information of course, and more reason to why. Um, the saints were doing what they were doing during this time. Like Joseph Smith didn't just wake up and say, hey, I should run for president. Like there was a reason why they wanted to um, be free from America. They want to rewrite the constitution. Joseph Smith wanted to create some change. It wasn't all just like pride or anything. Um, So Park writes in the beginning of the book, how Mormons in Nauvoo rejected many laws that they saw as oppressive or unfair. Most fundamentally, they rejected the separation of church and state the beleaguered saints, as they saw themselves, had concluded that democratic rule led to the oppression of marginalized people and voices. Rejecting democratic freedom, the Mormons felt the need to establish a new political order. Faced with the disarray brought by the voice of man, Mormons hearkened to the stability promised by the voice of God. This promise included priestly administration, coordinated voting, and patriarchy. They sought a Moses who could lead modern day Israel out of its wilderness. The saints desire nothing less than to transform the world. I mean, everyone wants to do that. But yeah, so like he talks a lot about how the church really was a minority. They had a very small voice. Like they they had a strong voice, but it was still very small. They And because of how different they were at the time, they were really seen um, as a minority. Like we know how like um, in early America, like even like the Irish and the Italians, like weren't really seen as white because of their cultural differences. Um, so there, to be considered white or normal or American during that, those early years um, was a very limited lot of people um, and any difference really separated them from the overall community or society of what America considered itself to be. And you can, and I mean, if you like realize that the constitution and the way that Justice Smith saw it was that the the laws of land, especially the federal laws didn't really protect minorities as much as they could or should. And I mean, that's even been noted by like James Madison in the past, like the laws that the constitution didn't do enough at the time, they just thought it'd be like enough to get started and then like keep free working. <clears throat> which we could do a little bit more of to protect some more people but yeah so like Joseph Smith had like reasons for wanting to do this was it the right way to go about it? no the reasoning makes sense <laughs> the approach does yeah. not yes thank you well put so and then just and to note that park highlighted that the detailed minutes from the council's meetings meticulously recorded by a secretary clayton um william clayton he's referenced a lot because he did take a lot of notes during that time. And it's why we know like anything secretive that might've been going on at any time then. Um, So uh, he was convinced that their proceedings held the key to the world's future. Oh, they were restricted from believers and historians alike, restricted from believers and historians alike for 172 years, even as rumors of their scandalous content spread both within and beyond the faith's community. So, like, they were afraid of being seen as treasonous, so they didn't want anything to fall into the wrong hands, and yet, the rumors spread regardless, yes, and they could have quelled the rumors just um, by saying something. They could have, and they did it. Um they picked a release date of the year twenty sixteen, which is when they shared the scandalous information, the minutes from the Council of the fifty. Wait a second wait 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 wait. rewind yes
1: so you're telling me yes. that the council of the 50 voted and agreed that 2016 oh would no be... no they didn't fake it the t- oh, the
0: today chose oh Sorry. okay i no. thought you were saying oh gosh <laughs> that'd be really I'm- funny that would be really so- funny <laughs> Uh, I, I thought you were saying no.
1: <laughs> the Council of the Fifty were like, okay, guys, we're gonna keep this secret until a date in the future. Oh my god! Pick a date in the future, and someone said 2016. There's
0: no way the world's gonna be going <laughs> at that point, anyways. Let's pick right. it. 2000 was supposed to be the new millennium. Oh Dear Christ god. returns. No, <laughs> um, no, the Church, current Church's leadership of 2016 decided. Yes, this is an excellent time, truly the meeting minutes from the Council of the 50. I would personally still like to know why they picked that timeframe.
1: Maybe it was to distract everyone from the dumpster fire of the
0: presidential elections of 2016. I think it's exactly the opposite. They saw what dumpster fire it was and they're like, we'll just... People are still asking, we'll just put it out and hopefully no one will notice that it's actually out. Like, let's just do this because that that, might do it too. that's what ha- that's what happens in politics all the time. Oh, let's share about this stupid thing that just happened and quietly release this information on UFOs and hope that nobody <laughs> notices. <laughs> and then it's yeah, going to okay. take people weeks, months, years to be like, hey, wait, this came out since when? Why are we yeah. only realizing this now? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, there's even, um, I have it down in our notes somewhere. This non-member wrote this big piece about Joseph Smith and the Council of the 50 years ago, but he could not get the church to release any information. So he had to work off of what was currently publicly available. And like you can hear, and from my saying, you can kind of hear it in his content and say like, yeah, the church wouldn't give it to me but I know it includes at least this kind of thing in there, but I can't tell you anymore because I don't have the information. Um, And so like, from my understanding is that like Dr. Park has like pulled from that guy's piece. Um, It's a book, actually not just like a article thing. And then he was able to build off of that though, and do a lot more because the council of the fifties meeting minutes got released. So a lot of stuff. Um, that's oh, crazy. Literally is right here. Um, okay. It was a 2003 published book about Joseph Smith by Richard Bushman titled rough stone rolling. Yeah. Okay. Then I had two side notes to include to the side of this um, one. There is a note it, uh, that's been shared around a lot so that you guys can just kind of have some knowledge about this. Um, Joseph Smith wrote to John C. Calhoun. He was a state senator. Uh, I want to say South Carolina, but I could totally be wrong. It might be North Carolina, it could be anywhere else. Um, he wrote that the state's rights doctrine is what feeds mobs. South Carolina. Thank you. Um, so, because Jeff Smith and the early Saints didn't learn a lot about mobs. And so, a lot of the issues that he saw going on was the differentiation between state's rights and federal rights. Um, and they're just like you can tell from our, or the history that we do know is that states' rights did not protect or take care of anyone. They only created more harm for people. And then secondly, I think is an, a very important side note. Um, and this was just shared through like some people's comments, um, conversations and takes on Dr. Park's book. Um, but in, there were, in someone's review, they mentioned Benson's book, The Constitution, A Heavenly Banner. A more recent book, an lds person talking about the perfection of the u.s constitution and so it totally makes sense to me and and from their perspective that they said that like this was probably a pretty helpful document a book that like had a big part in members more uh in viewing our government through a more positive light than it had before because i mean as American as the saints were in the beginning kind of thing The the majority of the saints they were like okay we've got to rewrite the Constitution we've got to do something we've got to like take better care of minorities and of ourselves our neighbors and do something better and you know have a theocratic kingdom. Um, and so like, and I think that was more the mentality of the church for a long time because When they were going to Utah, that wasn't America anymore. They were leaving America, literally. They went from Missouri. They went to Nauvoo. They were like, we just got to get out of here. We got to get out of America. We've got to be immigrants somewhere else. That had to be more of the American mentality for a long time. But, you know, as the church got more settled, more situated, they got, you know, they agreed to chill out with some of their um, things that they were doing. Um, So they started like working, like realizing they could have some power if they did go along with the main um requests of the law state or federal asking um and then they're like, okay let's like, keep working on this and then of course you get Benson. and he's like yeah the constitution is amazing dudes let's let's dive with this and then that's where we're at now that's why you've got the white horse and the the folklore of the constitution hanging by a thread it's supposed to you guys oh let's cut it and do something better for all of us yeah but like as much as the church's official position has always been centered on not being political, the church leaders really have been involved one way or another. Joseph Smith ran for president. Leaders have curried for favor and religious rights. Um, they've established their own militias. Um, they've had they've had a they've had and or have tried to have a say in town charters, and the building of rights and laws, and so much more. Like Maybe they're not publicly saying, yeah, you have to vote for this person, but they've been very close to it. Like there is a report of like them of several saints like going through um Hiram's like office or a space one day, like to confirm who they voted for. Um, because they were all, like all like quietly asked or recommended to vote for this one person. Oh my gosh. So yeah, there's a lot of really interesting pull politics, um, which I don't typically care for, but it's fascinating to see how much was really going on during that time because America was still very new. It was only mm-hmm. like 50 years old and we had like weird political parties that we don't really have now and people were making sense of things and making things up as they went along. And to see the Mormons like jump into that is very interesting. Yeah. So that's the first highlight. Crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go into the second highlight now.
1: So the second highlight is basically about how Nauvoo was the crucible of the Mormon experience. On page four of the book, it says, quote, It shapes how they think about their traditions past and persists as a pilgrimage destination. Hundreds of thousands stream into the small town every summer to watch plays, tour historic homes, play games, and take in speeches by experienced missionaries, end quote. It is very much like... Think of Salem, Massachusetts, where you will go and tour. There's literally a Salem witch museum. You can reenact witch trials, experience the whole shebang, have someone that gets, I don't know if they still do this. It's been like, oh, it's been years since I've been there.
0: I'm very, I was not expecting you to go in this direction with witches. I was expecting to go like, yeah, people go, you know, uh Pilgrimage to Jerusalem and like other no no, 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 but you're going into witches.
1: I equate Nauvoo with Salem, Massachusetts. Because so, I grew up in New Hampshire. Every I think what there's a point in middle school where you read the story of the crucible and you go on a field trip to Salem, Massachusetts. And when you go to the Salem Witch Museum. At least back in the 90s and early 2000s, you were able to experience the full witch trial experience, meaning people got slips of paper that said that they were either a townsperson or a witch. Um, And then you basically live the plot of The Crucible where someone (sighs) is accusing another person in your grade of being a witch. You put them on trial. (laughs) You do the whole shebang. It's literally Uh the same thing. And you're going through these historic houses. Mm -hmm. You're going into like these old historic town halls and like everything. You're experiencing the full experience and people do it all year round. So I always have equated Nauvoo with like the Salem Witch Museum because it's almost the same thing. People go to Nauvoo every year. They are touring through all of these historic houses through the city itself, they're going on these tours that tell you the story of like Mormon pioneers coming into Nauvoo, how they, why they fled there, why they settled there. So you've never been? To Nauvoo? Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. Oh, you? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Same. I've been there. Okay. You watch a play, you watch a musical <laughs> yeah. about them. Like <laughs> it's, it's so much, yeah. but look, I had more fun yes. at the Salem Witch Museum, honestly. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean- in my mind, it works exactly the same way. So funny. I mean, no, you're you're not wrong.
0: You're so. <laughs> seeing
1: like a very specific view of this piece of history. Yes. That is curated to match the environment. So like for the Witch Museum in Salem, you're, you're stepping into a
0: specifically curated <laughs> piece of history. They know just how they want to portray it. They got it all stylized. And it... It's the same
1: with Nauvoo. It is the exact same with Nauvoo. Yes.
0: Did you ever talk to any locals while you were there?
1: No, because I was like 10. I was like
0: 12.
1: Yeah. I was like 10 when I went with my family and it was really hot and I was unhappy being there and... It was like the last place I
0: wanted to be for my summer vacation. Oh, that's like <laughs> the only real vacation my family's ever done. Otherwise, it's always been to like family in like Utah. So like not a vacation. So for for that reason, it was very exciting for us. Um, we did still have some fun about it, but like we did go into a few local spots to eat food. And the locals were just like, yeah, we don't really like you guys. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't want these heroes. We just want to be living our lives, but we, we can't grow anything. We can't grow the city or anything because the church owns it. Yeah. The more, yeah, the church owns everything. So they've decided how they want to keep it, which means those who are not Mormon and are just like kind of born and raised there don't have much, many options. Um, So we'll have, they have to basically find a way to leave if they can, which then of course the church can take up more and more from them.
1: But also, I am going to use the argument that is often used in Salem, Massachusetts, which is without this group of individuals, this city would not exist. So as Mm -hmm. much as you don't like it, (laughs) if this group of people did not come to Nauvoo, the -hmm. city as you know it would not exist and you would not have been born and raised there. So you can complain. But nobody cares, <laughs> which is what everyone oh, yeah. in Massachusetts basically says. Like, oh my gosh, That's Salem great. residents hate tourists that go to the Salem Witch Museum and do mm-hmm. all of that stuff because it crowds yes. Salem. Salem's a really small part of Massachusetts. It is. But they can't complain because mm-hmm. without the tourists, there would be no extra funding going into the city as a whole, and they would not have a city with which to live.
0: Okay, but it's also like, it also can get super nuanced and like there are other takes on that as well, especially like when you think consider like smaller like islands and countries like Puerto Rico, Hawaii and so on who really don't want to have to rely on the tourism. We're not going to get into that though. We're just, but yeah, um, Yeah. there's just like a lot of really interesting considerations to take into with Navi. That's the thing because it does put them it it does put them on a map it puts the middle of what is it illinois on the Mm -hmm. map which i mean so in a way it kind of you know compares with their other um hot spot abraham's abraham lincoln's um birthplace Mm -hmm. i think that's mostly all they got um i would like to say this though the only people that are allowed
1: to complain about Nauvoo and salem and other historic sites like that are native americans whose land those sites are on yes they're the only ones that are allowed to complain everybody else get over it i'm just gonna put that out there right now because <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: land literally stolen okay yeah if
0: they want to give back to anyone
1: trisha and tiffany who are mad that they can't get a starbucks in nauvoo because the church oh owns gosh. nauvoo take several seats nobody <laughs> cares about your complaints
0: starbucks be there
1: okay i'm moving on
0: (laughs) so we could talk a whole podcast on that that's actually super funny um interesting okay but yeah okay so katie ludlow
1: rich in her exponent 2 review noted quote park's poignant explanation of joseph smith's legal maneuvering through the nauvoo city charter and city council Um, The charter granted the city unusual rights regarding issuing writs of habeas corpus, which allowed them to protect Joseph and other leading men from arrest and extradition. This analysis of the unusual use of writs within the city helped me understand why Joseph's personal and political enemies may have viewed him and the city as a threat to law and order, and why some viewed mob action as the only way to achieve justice. Between his explanation of the role of the Council of 50 and Nauvoo's atypical use of writs, Park clarified points of political activity that had previously seemed murky for me, end quote. This comment... I think this comment and review I think is very interesting because the church paints mob activity as like the saints did nothing wrong. The saints just they moved to a new place. They were they were constantly persecuted, blah, 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 blah. But we have to remember that like persecution doesn't just happen for the sake of persecution. There are things that lead up to acts of persecution most of the time. And it could be that there was a misunderstanding. It could be that someone was infringing upon land ownership. It could be a whole bunch of reasons, or it could just be prejudice. We don't know. But whatever the reason is, mob action doesn't just happen overnight it's because frequent requests or frequent communications have been shut down and ignored or any other thing where they feel like they have no other choice but to attack them i'm not trying to say that what mobs do are good no
0: they can get i mean they get out of hand immediately they are a disaster By nature. We understand that. We are not trying to excuse that. No one should join a mob. No one should be a part of one. No one should suggest one. No one. They shouldn't happen.
1: Yeah. There are things that happen along this relationship that cause people to be like, what the heck is going on here? Like, think about any time where you find a person that you strongly dislike. You don't immediately meet the person and hate them. And want bad things to happen to them. That's not generally the immediate reaction upon meeting a person. You develop this opinion over time through actions, through behaviors, through things that they say or do. And over time, you realize you want to distance yourself from that person. You want nothing to do with them. And then at the very end of it, you may have an explosive reaction to them and say you hate them and you never want them in your life again. You didn't get from point A to point Z immediately. There were steps, there were things in between that happened, And those steps in between are the things that church historians leave out when they're doing their records about the church's movements throughout the country. We miss steps B through Y in terms of what was happening around the saints, what was happening in every location they fled to that led people... In these areas that had never met Mormons before to go from meeting them to wanting to murder them all. There's the middle piece that we're missing. And I think this comment highlights that and the fact that Benjamin Park shines a light on those missing points that we don't see in church history.
0: Um, so yeah and then just like the general way that Dr. Park discusses Nauvoo is very interesting because it really is the crucible for the church and everything that was going on there and the building up of Nauvoo was such an experiment like we were saying like with the church political situation then everything was super new Um, Nauvoo is where Joseph Smith was trying all sorts of things and it's so fascinating to see And learn like what he was trying to do because we have such a a a refined idea of what the church is and what all the principles are all the doctrine all um the the practices that we have in the covenants that we make all that stuff it all makes sense to us it all is like tied up prettily in a bow for the most part but with joseph smith around he was still building things up and putting things together and um learning to better understand the spirit and doctrine and everything like it's a lot, especially like for one like fun example, um Dr. Park talks about the first baptism of the dead in the book. It did not go the way that I thought it would, so i i I copied the quote from his from Dr. Park's blog, but it comes from the book. There was one day in church where Joseph Smith was teaching, and he was talking, and he'd heard, he knew there was some rumblings of discussion about um those who couldn't get baptized because they'd already passed away. Um, and he knew of like one family who'd like lost family members and they're like, okay, well, we like, want to be together. Like we like, it's sad that this person who's dead can't be baptized now. And so he was like, yeah, we can totally do baptisms for the dead. Like it's a thing. So Dr. Park wrote the first person who was baptized for someone who was dead was a woman. And one of the witnesses was a woman as well, because women could do a little bit more back then. So the quote goes, Vienna Jacques was mounted on a horse when she witnessed Mormonism's first vicarious baptism. Jacques had already witnessed much in her life born in Boston the same year that America's founders wrote the Constitution. She was in her 40s when she embraced the LDS faith, giving up her home and comfortable living to join the young movement. She decides to move to Kirtland, was then asked to move to Missouri, and then finally forced to move to Nauvoo. She had many trials along the way, but she was quick to point out the many blessings. Serving as a first witness for what came to be one of the church's most famous ordinances was just another chapter in her momentous story. It was due to another woman that the baptism took place at all. In many ways, Jane Nyman had a lot in common with Jacques. She was a woman of faith who persevered through immense suffering. Her husband, William, died within months of their arrival in Nauvoo in 1840, following their son, Cyrus, who had died several years previous. Death seemed ubiquitous in the Mormon city that summer. What the saints called swamp fever took the lives of many new settlers, including Joseph Smith's own father. Funerals and burials were nearly a weekly occurrence. Like you can read more about that story in general, Um, but it's very fascinating to see like what was going on at the time and like kind of what helped prompt this doctrine that came about because not a lot of churches have anything like that. Uh, So it's very cool to see that. Um, So I can't remember, but someone else, it wasn't Justice Smith, I think, who actually did the first um, did the first baptism. Um, So Jane Naiman was. Baptized for her deceased um, husband and son was uh, Jacques. She like was on horseback when it was happening, Um, but then she like stormed into the river because she couldn't hear like what was actually being said Um, because there wasn't appropriate terminology yet. There wasn't um, the, the words that were put together yet. So there was just like enough approval that Joseph Smith said, like, yeah, you guys can kind of get started on it. But he didn't know all the baptism for the dead that were starting to take place then. And so, like, he's like, at one point, someone emailed him and said, okay, here's what happened. Someone emailed him. Oh, no. (laughs) A letter. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Joseph Smith had email.
1: (laughs) Someone emailed Joseph Smith. No, he wrote
0: him a letter. (laughs) My bad. He wrote him a letter. Oh, um, saying here's what we did. Here's what I said, and he basically just said, "Yeah, that's right. That's good enough." Like, like he was just like, "Yeah, that works,"
1: and made that the standardization that we have today.
0: Well, no, like I, I think I read <laughs> in like that wasn't exactly what it is today. Standardization came later. Like rules for it came later. You know, like the rule, like it can't be done outside of a temple, that came later. Like. They put things officially together at a later point. But like when it got started, it was just like, yeah, let's do this. Like, let's go for it.
1: Early church was wild, man.
0: Seriously. It really was an interesting experiment that was going on. They're just like, we'll figure it out as we go. Yeah. So just to like, see what we've got today and consider what they were doing back then is just so fascinating and weird.
1: Yeah. I like it. i um, going back to this crucible concept. Um, The book goes into a lot of detail about what was going on legally um, while the church was in Nauvoo. Um, It also talks a lot about the work that they were putting in to create a community or a city state um, and how it was really detailed and that there's so much that we can learn from their attempts and their intentions. We don't understand that much because we don't history that hard, <laughs> nor do we understand legalese that well, but from what we read, he, Dr. Park did a great job um it's really important for us to note that he is a historian, so he does speak history very very well um, and he knows how to talk about the past and address those sensitive topics very well um, We wanted to highlight this because. We both have read a lot of books about historical things. And we know of others that we
0: are not going to be reading. Um... Yeah,
1: and he seems to consider the audience that he's writing for when he writes, as opposed to other historical nonfiction books that we have read where they don't consider the audience and they just speak legalese and history and don't break things down in a way that the common person would understand.
0: Yeah, we we we've we've talked about this a little bit before. We we've quoted Dr. Park on his statement discussing certain people, <clears throat> Tim Ballard, uh, mm-hmm. people writing things about history and pulling together some ideas about it that aren't true. Because yeah, they're writing historical fiction is not the same as writing history nonfiction like you've got because yeah you have to consider the audience and under, making sure that they can understand things in the framework of where history was at that point in time because like we said earlier like yeah the church has written things about the past they, we've there's so much literature um of all types about the restoration of the church but for, but not all that was written by historians who are going to understand the nuances of, you know, the political climate of society, of overall religious factions going on at that point. You have to take into all those considerations before you start spatting off ideas or opinions, which happens in a lot of church literature. Um, and Park does, he does do a better job because he knows what he's doing. He understands the nuances of, discussing history. And that's very important to take into consideration if you're going to read about the past. Yeah. And that's going to bring us to our third highlight. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking about polygamy now. Um, it gets more like, I know we've touched on this quite a bit. Um, I just like, I felt even more in reading this. It was a very harsh reminder, um, that polygamy did not permit informed consent at the time. Yep. Um, and there's still so much that we don't know about like what everyone was doing in general Um, so we've kind of shared what we can yeah so there I do have a quote from an article in issue 54 of dialogue journal by s spencer wells it is titled politicking with the saints on reading benjamin park's kingdom of nauvoo the rise and fall um, of a religious empire on the american frontier he noted that while Park excels at uncovering the larger political significance of Nabu, he does not ignore the proverbial elephant in the room, polygamy. Indeed, the book is to be welcomed for the clear and cogent way in which it lays out the rise of a practice that Smith clearly attempted to keep secret. From the Prophet's initial forays into plurality to Hiram's and Emma's campaigns against the principle, through the use of Naboo, High Council, and Royal Society, respectively, Perhaps most provocatively, Park argues that Smith initially introduced the doctrine of eternal ceilings to deceased spouses in an effort to convince others, including Hiram Smith, who'd lost his wife, first wife, um, to accept the practice of celestial marriage. Wells later adds um, in his article, the one area of plural marriage that deserves more attention than it receives, however, is the unfolding of the practice within Nauvoo itself. Understandably, Park chooses to focus his his energy on explaining the role Smith played in the expansion of the principle. Yet increasingly, as Smith unveiled the notion of celestial marriage to others within his inner circle, the foundations of broader marital and social institutions were being laid out. As such, a closer scrutiny of those beyond Smith who eventually accepted the prophet's call seems in order. Why did Smith's followers accept such heterodox views? Why did Smith choose whom he did when he did to enter into the practice? What, if anything, distinguished the women who were brought into relationships of plurality? Such questions often lurk just behind, just beneath the surface. To be sure, Park does not completely skirt such issues. He writes of Hiram Smith's growing acceptance of plurality, of Brigham Young's first attempts to find a second wife, as well as a pregnancy resulting from W.W. W. Phelps' polygamous union. Yet, a more sustained treatment would further cement and re eyes the fundamental importance of the experimental practice in the rise and fall of Nauvoo so it's just super interesting um i mean i think dr park does better and most than most lds um writers in general just bringing up women where they were involved and so on Mm -hmm. it's very important because there i mean yeah there was a lot that women couldn't do but there was spiritual activism that was available at that time for them to engage in um kind of like we talked about how The Royal Society was the start of the welfare program for the church right now, which does do a lot for people today. Um, Originally meant to support the hungry and hurt, the Royal Society was also tasked to portray morality within their society. So like they were the ones who were like going out to petition for the church. They were presenting themselves as good people of faith. They like one of the things that they often did was like write to like say like, hey, like you've got my husband in jail, can you please release him? Here's the kind of people we are. Okay, governor, like we're in danger. Can you please help us out? Like they were doing a lot to get engaged with that kind of thing. Um, so like Joseph Smith did make space for women to be involved in the in some of the bigger councils as well that created change with the So there was room for them. But At the same time, they were only allowed in certain spaces and polygamy. It was never like an outright thing for them. Like it was, it it was super messy. Like we all know how like Emma Smith was like never totally on board with polygamy. And she got cut out of a lot of things at that time because of how strongly she felt about this. Um, like the society got disbanded, like a lot of things like were happening at that time. And I think it's just really important that we note, um, that women did have a place, but it could easily be taken away from them. So it never was really theirs to begin with.
1: I think it's interesting how we see in this book more clearly that a space was made for women to carry these bigger, more important roles. And since they've been taken away, they haven't been reinstated.
0: That's very true. I mean, there's been like tiny a few tiny things that have come back like women cannot be witnesses in the temple so like that's on but like we don't yeah we'd already had that at one point it just been taken away yeah and I don't think a lot of people actually know that it was ever an object for us at some point yeah Um,
1: I think it's also interesting the discussion about polygamy in the book because we already know how damaging it was to the residents like the Mormon residents of Nauvoo Um, And that's not even looking at Illinois as a whole. We're just talking about the Mormon community. And so seeing how polygamy is explained in this and how it impacts Illinois as a whole, as well as how you could basically infer that polygamy was one of the big inciting incidents that led to the downfall of Nauvoo. Yes. How... I, again, I'm like tongue tied. I just feel like mm-hmm. if polygamy had not happened, would like how would history have changed? Ooh. How would things have been different? Yeah, would Joseph Smith actually been murdered? Would they have needed to flee west? Would everything be set up in Utah as like church headquarters? like would any of that needed to happen if they just did not? Go the polygamy
0: route. It's crazy to consider. Yeah. Okay. Um there are um a few more fun facts we want to share that aren't quite highlights. Firstly, um I do feel the need to note um there was a plan called Focus Brigham. Sorry. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> uh yeah, so like if people when people came looking for Brigham Young later at the temple and stuff. Um, they dress someone up as him and then surround him with people pretending to be his wives, which like worked. Um, Most of the pretend wives were not his wives. They were other women, but one of them was Border Rockwell and Drag. Oh my gosh. So I just, I feel like that's more the history I would have liked to learn about. Yeah. Um, And I think it should be considered a lot more acceptable to be learning about, um, especially with, you know, people complaining about you know, drag reading times at public libraries for kids and stuff like we've got we've got a lot of that in our history. If you guys would pay attention. Um, Yeah, we've already talked about Brigham Young's son,
1: Mm -hmm. who was a very famous drag queen and was the entertainment for Lorenzo Snow's birthday party one year. But just seeing that Greg was an acceptable way of life in Nauvoo times, I feel like the church should be a little bit more forgiving of it now and not try to condemn it as like evil practices and grooming because clearly that's not the
0: case right yeah um which leads right into my next point because the church has gotten like very standardized in a lot of things including their views on certain things today like drag and the queer community which like they're doing all wrong clearly um because the early saints did have a lot of compassion for people. Like they showed empathy for the oppression of marginalized voices. They understood that they were one. And like, like we said, like Joseph Smith wanted to rewrite the constitution um, and protect the marginalized, not just themselves, but other people, including women and people of color. Yeah. So, I mean, the book does dive in more regarding race and slavery. Um, We've mentioned a little bit about this and like about people of color, Um, and the restoration before but we haven't uh, we've never dived too deeply into this because we're not the most experienced with this Um, we're not well versed in discussing this topic it is sensitive and we do want to be able to do it justice i know some people have may have wondered about this we just knew we couldn't do this right but there are plenty of other incredible voices that you could check out such as the sisters and zion and beyond the block there's other incredible people you can um, tune into to learn more about that. Then, one last thing I want to note, um, which Park has talked about quite a bit before, is um, how he references the concept of Mormon exceptionalism. So, it's not that the world sees us as that interesting and different and exciting. Like, yeah, plug me, yay, weird, woo. Um, but it's that we've like we see it in ourselves, like the, the exceptionalism, like, oh, we are different. We are amazing. We are the people. We're a
1: peculiar people. Yes.
0: And we've really <laughs> tried hard throughout the very like early saints to now we've tried hard to establish that stand out while also trying to remain on the cusp of saying Christianity. And I mean, granted, like once we realize we are kind of, you know, stuck in America, uh, we've tried to become more approachable, more normal and acceptable. We've downplayed ourselves in the past, including Mitt Romney's presidential run. Um, but overall, one of the things that keeps so many people as members of the church, one of the things that like draws some people in even is our belief in our exceptionalism. It's a mentality that we share more with one another than we share with other churches. And from my personal experience, from like what other people enjoy in their religions as well, they just see themselves as like religious people. They don't like consider themselves like super different, like super this or that. Like it's the Mormons who are like, yes, we are exceptional.
1: Yeah. On one hand, our doctrine does push us in that direction because we do like yes, to preach that but... <laughs> we are created in the image of God. We are covenant heirs of his kingdom and we're destined to be like God one day. However, we let that go to our heads a lot. Yeah. And we let it affect everything we do in this life. And it gives us a God complex, which should not be the case. Yeah
0: yeah um yeah so it's very interesting and then he so he joined for a conversation dr park on the new books network, you can check out the conversation online. And he mentioned like how we're always on the outside of the mainstream as much as we try to like kind of send ourselves in it. But like he really tried to do a good job in explaining what the Mormons were doing, what the early saints were up to. And like this book is an American history as well. It's not just ours. We need to be able to understand how America has operated and handle different religions and situations throughout history. We've taken for granted that our constitution and version of democracy is the best. Um, early saints didn't though. Nabu really was an experiment, and it's interesting to see how it did fall apart. We need to understand the correlations here. And Park said that that's one of the things that someone should note when they're first diving into reading this. One of the things that we that at least I did to help myself like better understand this book was go online and look at a lot of resources because you can find a ton of lectures, podcast interviews, um, notes, and so much more um, by Dr. Benjamin E. Park talking about his book. He is a historian. He is constantly writing papers. He is working on more books right now, as it is like, he's got material that you can check out. If you need to listen to something that's easier for you, you can do that. You can read, you can do anything you need to, to better understand and learn this. So we are going to close by inviting you to check them out, uh, to keep learning about the our Mormon history and to even share your own thoughts as well. We'd love to hear what you guys thought of the book and as well as what we've discussed in case we butchered anything.
1: <laughs>
0: so I want to <laughs> add in that I'm glad that you
1: mentioned that this book is an American history book too. Mm-hmm because it does talk about everything, not just our religious history, but it talks about how it fit into American history at the same time. I'll be very honest. When I tried to find this book, I thought it was going to be in the religious text section of the bookstore that I was looking at. I was at the Strand in New York. It was not. It was in the Americana section because it's an American history book. So really take that to heart that this isn't traditional church history that we know and we've grown up with it doesn't come with the bias that we grew up no with. this is really american history but it's highlighting how the mormons fit into american history which is something that we don't see in traditional church history so, really, come into that with that kind of view and that open mind that you're not going to get the sanitized, shiny, <laughs> nice church history that you're used to and you've grown up with, you're going to get the grit you're gonna get the mess, and you're gonna get the chaos that
0: is really there as one should yeah, yeah, so we we enjoyed it we and uh we enjoyed the book we uh so thank you, Dr. Park for. You're not writing it if you listen to this and hated it. um, We're sorry. Sorry. (laughs) We tried. It was very interesting. Um, we hope this format for the book club also worked for you guys. Um, we want to make sure we had an opportunity to share as much about the book as we learn mm-hmm. um, in a digestible manner. We hope that you found this interesting. There is definitely room for where we could have been wrong. So much. That's always a possibility. We know that. We accept this. If you do have any notes for us or corrections, definitely feel free to reach out to us we are here to learn and to grow. We've definitely acknowledged our mistakes on this podcast and we're ready to do it again as needed. Yeah. Hopefully we didn't misconstrue anything too much though. Um, it was a lot of fun to read it and it was fun discussing it. So yeah. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. That's all I've got to say. Yeah, This is our last book club. Yeah. So. Thanks
1: for joining us on our final book club episode ever. And for participating for those of you that have participated in our previous book club episodes even if you just listened to the episode and not joined our zoom discussion thank you for supporting it and for continuing to trust us with this kind of discussion we love it
0: yes thank you all right bye Bye.